Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. God is faithful. The Bible states that in plain language, and it does it in some very significant passages. I think in this series I referred to these verses, but this is a reoccurring theme, and it needs to be stated again. The plain statements are in verses like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful, there it is, and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it says, very simple, plain language, God is faithful, in that case, to forgive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except as in common to man. But God is faithful. There it is again. Who will not allow you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Those are two illustrations. There are others where the Bible just says in plain language, God is faithful. The Bible also illustrates that truth in a number of different ways. But um, even so, so many miss the unbelievable extent to which God will go to fulfill his promise. Matter of fact, as I have studied the book of Genesis, as well as some other passages of Scripture, I have been impressed uh, with the fact that there, this is a major theme in the portion of Genesis we've been in lately. It is telling us stories to demonstrate that God is faithful to keep his promise. So, we're going to look at another one of those stories tonight in Genesis chapter 38. So, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 38? While you're turning, let me tell you that last time I said we're entering a portion of the book of Genesis that is about Jacob and Joseph, and that most of what we were going to look at was about Joseph. Now, what I'm about to do is tell you a story that doesn't have anything to do with Joseph. So we just saw in chapter 37, this is the generation of Jacob. And then the next thing he does is tell us a story about another son of Jacob, not Joseph at all. So one of the questions we might ask is, what in the world is going on? Well, if you remember, I said, while the main focus is Joseph, the overall story is about Jacob. So we're going to look a lot at what happened to 
Joseph. We'll get back to him. But since the main point of the latter part of Genesis is about Jacob, we're going to discuss one of the stories of Judah, not Joseph. That's chapter 38. And by the way, I might also point out before we look that this chapter uh, covers a span of probably about 20 years. And it sketches the life of Judah, and it's, uh, there's some ramifications to this chapter in that it gives us the three branches of that tribe. The other thing I would say before we look at it is this is one of those very sorted stories in the Bible. This is um, one that's pretty blunt. I don't know how I managed to do this, but I just finished teaching the book of Judges, and I think one of the grossest stories in all of the Bible is in the book of Judges, and the others that are pretty gruesome are in the book of Genesis, and I think we're about covered all the gruesome stories, and this is going to be the last one. The one, this chapter, is so specific, and it's so out there, that one commentator says, this chapter is rarely read in public. So I want to give you a disclaimer before we look at this chapter. It's really interesting. This would fit... uh, the soap operas very well. All right, with all of that in mind, let's look at Genesis chapter 38, verse 1. It came to pass at that time. Oh, what time is that? Well, that's obviously a reference to what just happened in chapter 37, and what just happened in chapter 37 is that Joseph got sold into slavery. So he's down now in Egypt. We'll come back to him later. But at that time, at the time that Joseph was sold into slavery, that Judah departed from his brethren and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hara. Now, uh, he left home too. Uh, he went down to uh, some place not far from his home, actually. Uh, from where he was to where he went was no more than about eight miles, but the point is he left home. Now when he got there, verse 2 tells us, there was this certain Canaanite. Now remember, they are not supposed to marry Canaanites. That's uh, God is trying to keep the line so that through this Jewish line he can bring the Messiah and he doesn't want them marrying uh, Canaanites because a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which is that'll lead them into idolatry. It'll pollute the line. Uh, So he doesn't want them to do that. Well, Judah finds a Canaanite, Shia, and he married her, and he went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and his name was Ur. And she conceived again, verse 4, and she called his name Owen. And she conceived again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. And uh, so he had three sons. Uh, That's the point. So these first five verses are telling us nothing more than Judah had three sons. 
then is when the story gets real interesting. Verse 6. Then Judah took a wife for Ur. Now, obviously, it, the first five verses tell us that he had three sons, and now he's taking a wife for one. That's got to be years later. Uh, and this is the oldest son. So he took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judy's, uh, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Now, I just have all kinds of questions about that. What did he do? We don't have a clue. Uh, why did the Lord kill him? Well, the only thing we're told is he did something wicked. Now, the New Testament talks about a sin unto death. There are some sins that you can commit that apparently God says, that's it for you, you're done. Uh, I've really scratched the scripture to try to figure out what that is. And in the New Testament, I think, uh, some want to say it's persisting in sin, but I'm not, I've heard that a lot, but I'm not persuaded it's exactly accurate because I know people that persist in sin and the Lord doesn't kill them. Uh, it seems to me that it has to do with uh, uh, the public uh, bringing uh, public disgrace uh, in somehow uh, in the church. Anyway, Ananias and Sapphira, the great illustrations, and they sold their property and publicly lied about it. And the Lord said, bam, you're out of here. At any rate, the firstborn died. That's all you really need to know pertaining to this story. So, verse 8 says, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. Now this may strike us as strange, and for our culture it would be, but there's nothing unusual about this in the ancient world. The idea was this. Uh, you had children to carry on the family line. In the case of Israel, he gave the tribe certain portions of the land, and they were to have children to keep that portion in the line. So the rule was that if you, uh, if a man... Uh, died and didn't have a son, that his brother would marry the wife, the widow, and raise up an heir for his brother. Very legal and legit. So Judah asked the secondborn to marry the widow of the firstborn so that the firstborn could have an heir. Now, the one thing you need to know beyond that is this. If he did that, then the child would be the heir of the firstborn and not the heir of the secondborn. That's the whole deal, that you're giving the firstborn a rightful heir. So, uh, verse 9 says, This secondborn knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass that when he went into his brother's wife, 
that he emitted on the ground lest he would give an heir to his brother. This is one of the most significant statements in this story, as blunt as it is. But what you need to know is that last phrase in verse 9, lest he should give an heir to his brother. That's what's important. So he was having marital relationships with her, and he interrupted it just so she could not get pregnant. And the reason he did that was because uh, he didn't want his brother to have an heir, which is a very unloving, unrighteous thing to do. Verse 10, And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore the Lord killed him also. Now we know why this one died. Uh, He so displeased the Lord, the Lord said, time's up, buddy. And so he killed him. Verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until the third son is old enough to get married. And when he's grown, then we, I'll give him to be your husband, though there's going to be a huge age difference. But you can have a son, and my firstborn will have an heir. So that's the plan. Got it? Three sons, first two get killed. And the third one isn't old enough to marry the widow of the first two. That's the plot. Then it really gets interesting. And she, he said, I'm in verse 11, he also liked his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt with her father's house. Now, in the process of time, uh, Shuma, uh, Shua, Judah's wife died, and so he decided uh, that he needed to be comforted, and he decided to go tend the sheep. He was going through a grief process, perhaps. His wife had died, and he was going to go shear the sheep. And so it was told, Tamra, saying, verse 13, your father-in-law is uh, going up, to shear the sheep. So she took off her widow's garment, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was in the way. For she saw that uh, Shea was grown, that is, the third son was not grown, and she was not. Uh, He had grown up at this time. That's why I said this thing took at least 20 years. He's the youngest son. And she was not given to him as a wife. All right. What he's saying is this. The, the, The third son is now old enough to marry her. But Judah hadn't given the third son her to be a wife. So she's lost out for the third time. Strike three. You're out. The first two husbands died. And now the third one's old enough to get married, and he hasn't been given to you. So verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because 
she had covered her face. He did not know this was his daughter-in-law. Very important. Verse 16, Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? Do you understand what's going on? I mean, did I tell you this was a soap opera level stuff or what, right? We're now negotiating the price. Uh, That's exactly what's going on. We're negotiating the price. So he said, tell you what I'll do. I'll send you, verse 17, a young goat from the flock. And she said, will you give me a pledge until you send it? And he said, well, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, I don't know, your signet ring, the cord, and that staff that's in your hand. Then he gave them to them, and he went into her, and lo and behold, she conceives a son. Finally. By the way, uh, she, she isn't doing anything wrong at this. I mean, she deceived him. That's a whole other issue. But she had the right to this. I mean, that's the whole point of the first part of the story. These various brothers were supposed to supply her with an offspring. So the way she got it is <clears throat> interesting. But the, that part of the story is uh, what the Lord wanted, actually. Um, what is interesting is that she deceived this guy to get it. Now, does that, if you've been listening to me as we've been going through the book of Genesis, does that ring any bells? Who got deceived in this book? Jacob. Jacob deceived Esau. Remember way back then? Uh, and then he turns around and gets deceived by Laban. Remember that? So deception sort of runs in this family. And now his son Judah gets deceived by a woman. Not the first time, or the last time I should say that's happened. Verse 19, so she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. Remember she wanted a pledge? Remember what that was? The signet, the cord, and the staff. So I centered the goat. That was the deal, and I want my stuff back. But the guy who went with all that stuff, or the goat, couldn't find her. Verse 21. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot uh, who was openly by the roadside? And they said to him, We don't have any harlots here. Uh, No harlots hang around here. And that's the truth. Uh, She wasn't a harlot. She deceived Judah, but uh, he said, we don't know what you're talking about. None around here. So he returned to Judah and said, I can't find her. Also, the men of the place said, there's no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed, for I sent this young goat 
and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So now the assumption is uh, she's become a harlot, and she's pregnant, so uh, that must be because she played the harlot. And now she's being accused of harlotry, which really, except for Judah, wasn't true. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. The penalty for adultery is death. So we're going to burn her at the stake. Now he doesn't know what happened. Verse 25, And she was brought out, and she sent her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these things belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Now, she doesn't accuse him. She just says, hey, if you want to know who's the father of my child, find out who these things belong to. Talk about a conniving plot. Boy, she had it, didn't she? Verse 26, so Judah acknowledged them and said, She's been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. That is that thirdborn. He has, and he never knew her again. Now, this is where uh, he shines. Uh, he readily admitted that he had sinned, and that she really hadn't. That was her right, because of marriage to the family. And he never had marital relationships with her again, uh, to his credit. So he confessed that he had indeed sinned. So, verse 27, And it came to pass at that time, for giving birth, and behold, twins were in her womb. And it was when she gave birth that one uh, put out his hand, And the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound his hand, saying, This one came out first. Have we been here before? You know, we got to determine which son comes out first. And so the midwife takes a little scarlet thread and wraps it around the kid's hand. So now this is the one that came out first. What goes around comes around. History goes in cycles. Whatever. All right, verse 29, then it happened, he drew back his hand. And his brother came out unexpectedly, and she said, how did you break through? The breach be upon you. Therefore his name was Perez, a Hebrew word which means breach. Afterwards, his brother came out, and he had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zephah. All right, that's the story. Isn't that interesting? Just read your Bible. Don't waste your time reading, listening to soap operas. Now, what in the world is the point of this story? What are we to glean from this? Well, uh, 
I think that the story, I think, is about God's faithfulness. Because God said back to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, and repeated again to Jacob, I am going to raise up a nation out of these. I'm making a covenant with you. And Jacob had 12 sons, and God is simply faithful to fulfill his promise. But what makes it so interesting is that in this chapter he does it in spite of the sins of his servant Judah. Incredible. So let me lay this out in real simple, clear language. Let me make three statements. Number one, this chapter is filled with unbelievable sin. The sin, you might say, was incest. One commentator said, this chapter records the compromise of the Israelites, specifically Judah, with the Canaanites, Shua and Tamar, that resulted in the confusion of the seed, the chosen with the condemned. This is the first time one of the chosen seeds selected a wife outside the preferred family of the patriarchs. Like Esau, Judah chose a wife from the women of the land, even one of the cursed Canaanites. It is perhaps the basis for the prohibition against uh, mixing kinds of seed, yoking two different kinds of animals together, and wearing two different kinds of thread of cloth that's later recorded in the Mosaic Law. In other words, he's laying out some of the sins that existed in this chapter. Now, I think we have a tendency to uh, get puffed up. Uh, we get, you know, we're not as bad as somebody we know. The simple reality is God's servants, and I'm using a broad term, can do absolutely abominable things. It's very popular these days to preach. I hear it all the time. As a matter of fact, I've heard it recently. Uh, somebody did something real bad. Well, he couldn't possibly be a Christian because a Christian wouldn't do that. You heard that? And I wonder what those people are reading. Because I, I, I've spent a lot of time lately in the Old Testament, and this is not the exception, it's the rule. I mean, we just went through the book of Judges. And Samson was a womanizer from get-go till the day he died. That's how he got killed, actually. Uh, and on and on and on it goes. David, one of the greatest men in all the Bible, commits adultery with Bathsheba and covers it up by committing murder. I mean, the simple reality is that believers are capable of unimaginable, unbelievable sin. So you cannot just look at somebody's life and determine whether or not they're a believer because believers can do 
unimaginable things. So this chapter is another illustration of the unbelievable sin that God's servants can commit. Incest, visiting a prostitute. Hello. I guess David tops it with murder, but hello. Right? Right. Second observation. This chapter is an illustration of the unbelievable faithfulness of God. I think that uh, that's really the point of the chapter. God said, I'm going to raise up a nation through Jacob. And Judah is part of that plot, plan. And he ends up having three sons. And none of them had descendants, male descendants. So he does through one of their wives. And they had twins. And of course, they become the leaders of the tribe of Judah. One said, just as in chapter 20, where the seed of Abraham was protected by the righteous Abimelech, it is the woman Tamar, not Judah the patriarch, who is ultimately responsible for the survival of the descendants of the house of Judah. So God is faithful, and he used this woman to do it. Earlier in the book of Genesis, it was Abimelech that would not go to bed with a patriarch's wife. And now it's the wife of one of these sons who sees to it that Judah has descendants. Judah and his brothers sold their younger brother into Egypt, thinking they would thwart God's design that the elder brothers would serve the younger, Joseph. Yet in Judah's own family, despite his attempts to hinder Tamar's marriage, God will work out in a confirmation of the principle of the elder would serve the younger. And all of this is to say, God is faithful. So put these two things together. Um, Man, including women, people are unfaithful, and God is faithful. That's what this is about. You can depend upon the faithfulness of God. You can depend upon God fulfilling his promises. So I began by quoting two verses in the New Testament that say that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there is no temptation taken us, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will give us a way out of the temptation. Again, In this case, God is faithful to his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And likewise, he is faithful to us to forgive us and to protect us. 
There's one more. Statement number one is this chapter is filled with unbelievable sin. Number two, this chapter is an illustration of the unbelievable faithfulness of God. And number three, this chapter is another indication of the unbelievable grace of God. The grace of God. Tamar was the mother of the messianic line from Judah. She is named in the genealogy of Jesus. You start reading the New Testament, you start with the Gospel of Matthew, you turn to chapter 1, and she, Tamar, is named in verse 3 as being in the line of the Messiah. The women who are named in that genealogy are, and you remember what I'm talking about, Genesis chapter 1, I'm not going to take time to read it, but it starts out, Jesus was the son of Abraham. And it lists the genealogy from Abraham to Joseph. And there are women listed in the genealogy. Not just men, women. But what is fascinating is the women that are listed. And one of them, one of the, the first woman, is Tamar. And what did she do? Deceived her father-in-law, and in essence, we would say, committed incest. And she gets in the messianic line. That is the grace of God. But that's only the beginning. Uh, so Tamar posed as a prostitute in order to become pregnant by Judah. You know the next woman that's mentioned? Rahab. If I mention the name Rahab, what's the next thing you think? Rahab the harlot. Now she didn't play it once. She was a prostitute until Jericho was conquered and she got married. That was her profession. The next woman in the genealogical line is Ruth, who persuaded Boaz to marry her by the questionable device of spending the night with him as he slept intoxicated on the threshing floor. Not exactly the highest uh, courtship, engagement, marriage you ever heard about. And then, of course, there is these are all listed in Matthew chapter 1. Then, of course, there's Beersheba, who became the wife of David by first committing adultery with him, and who her early life was probably the most... Uh, I'm, I'm, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to get to that in a minute. I just want to mention these women first. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Beersheba. They're all listed in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Christ. Now the point I want to make is this. That is an illustration of the grace of God. He doesn't save righteous people. He saves sinners. 
he doesn't just save sinners. He saves the most wicked sinners. And uses them. Matter of fact, I was talking to somebody this week and who was, uh, who's really made some mistakes in life. And I read Psalm 51. And David goes on and on and on about his sin. And he's talking about his sin with Bathsheba. And then he says, if you cleanse me and wash me and make me clean, I will teach transgressors your ways and I'll sing your praises. One of the great illustrations of the grace of God. Now, of these four women, Rahab, in her early life, was probably the most irreligious and carnal of them all. So I mentioned four, right? The four women. Now, of the four, who was the worst? In terms of us being a sinner, it would be Rahab the harlot, because it was her profession. I mean, Bersheba committed adultery with David. That's not good, but that's not being a prostitute. Even Tamar uh, acted like a prostitute, but only on one occasion. And Ruth, of course, didn't do any of that. So who of the four is the worst? Rahab the harlot, right? And she gets listed in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, and she's included in the hall of faith of Hebrews chapter 11. And that, I submit to you, is an illustration of the grace of God. That these women illustrate that God forgives sin and gives people a new life. So this is a sordid story. But it highlights all the more the faithfulness and the grace of God. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We adore you. How could we do otherwise? You saved us. And we didn't deserve it. And we don't. And we didn't earn it. And we never could. But you save us. So, Father, we thank you for your grace and for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.